0: Dr. Shiloh
1: and I'm Dr. Scott
0: and this is LA Not So Confidential the forensic psychology and true crime podcast.
1: Each week we explore the intersection of psychology the criminal justice system and entertainment.
0: Today our episode is on the forensic psych topic of family annihilators.
1: Kickoff for
2: Super Bowl 34. (laughs) The Titans Rams 2000 Super Bowl an instant classic hours after the game Two men were stabbed in the street, accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history.
3: Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder.
2: The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back, not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened to O.J. Simpson and look what happened to Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, But questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com.
0: Hi there, I'm Jordan Bonaparte, and on my show, Nighttime,
1: I seek out and explore Canada's most fascinating stories. Nighttime stories are told using intimate discussions with those affected.
2: They left you there. That was the last time anyone ever saw her.
1: Jail interviews with those held responsible.
2: The context of that meeting would be some kind of mass shooting.
1: And any other way necessary to get you to the heart of the story. You can join me by subscribing to Nighttime wherever you get streaming audio.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Shiloh. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. How are you, Dr. Scott?
1: I am pretty good. I was expecting to be completely impaired by my latest micro needling mm. session, but as I was explaining to you earlier, I escaped. But I should have a nice a reduction in my waddle by the summer. I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. So CrimeCon UK, you'll have less of a waddle.
0: <laughs> Scott's waddle will be nice and snatched for you. <laughs> you look fine. I don't see like really redness or anything on yeah, this that's just Zoom. I know,
1: that's just because I know how to use the the Zoom touch-up button.
0: <laughs> as got everyone it, got should it. Learn Another day. We are just trying to keep ourselves intact for you guys as we seriously go into what six years of this podcast. I tell
1: y'all, <laughs> we're holding it together with spit and prayer. There we spit go. Spit and prayer and an <laughs> over-the-counter mud mask. That's it.
0: There you go. So before we jump into our episode, let's do a little episode recap for what we brought you last week, which was actually supposed to be our vintage episode of the month. And we gave you a re-release from the early days of LA Not So Confidential, yeah. one of our very first vintage Los Angeles episodes, really one of the episodes that kind of inspired us to do this monthly. And the episode... This episode is from 2019. It is one of our favorites as it focuses on two fascinating characters that are integral to the history and development of Los Angeles. First, Mr. Griffith, J. Griffith, an extremely wealthy industrialist from Wales who had donated a huge piece of land in Los Angeles that eventually became Griffith Park. Griffith's legacy was an attempt really to cover his increasing financial challenges and deflect from this dirty little secret of intimate partner violence that he engaged in from time to time. So this was something from the beginning of the 20th century that fit really nicely with our L.A. theme and our vintage theme.
1: And then Dr. Shiloh led you through the history of the OG L.A. criminal psychiatrist and profiler, Dr. Dr. J. Paul DeRiver and his involvement in some of Los Angeles's most horrific crimes throughout the 1930s and 1940s. Now, DeRiver's work with the Los Angeles Police Department made him a pioneer in forensic profiling and the study of the modern sex criminal. And we explore some of his early perspectives that really today would be considered questionable at best and outdated mm. at the least.
0: Yep, absolutely. So today we're talking about a very specific type of offender, family annihilator. And Dr. Park Dietz, who, a very beloved forensic psychologist, I don't think I would not in my personal opinion, put him up with St. Reed Malloy. No. But he's certainly someone who we definitely stand on the shoulders of for the work that he's done. Yes. So he coined the term family annihilator back in 1986. He had a paper and then a symposium presentation titled Mass Serial and Sensational Homicides, and he described them as this. Usually the senior man of the house who is depressed, paranoid, intoxicated, or a combination of these. He kills each member of the family who is present, sometimes including pets. He may commit suicide after killing the others or may force the police to kill him. So there's a lot going on in that definition. And I think for an early attempt at sort of naming a type of offender, there's a lot of really good psychological behavioral notes to it and things that we will certainly echo today as we look at the more contemporary research. But I really remember this term sort of popping into my head, this and then, you know, familicide, because they're one and the same. Right. It, I think of annihilator as like you're just killing absolutely everybody. But I remember this term popping up and we were hearing a lot about it during the great recession here in the United States between like 2007, 2009 and it just seemed like it was story after story of these like tragic fathers killing their families on the news. I don't know. Do you remember that sort of period of time at all? Or I... just sort of came up more often?
1: I don't, but now that you said that, now I'm really interested because it does seem like, and we even talk about this coming up about how many times finances are used as the excuse. Or yeah. it's discussed as a particular driving force behind these crimes, but that would certainly track, you know, because that was yeah. two thousand seven, two thousand nine was was really difficult, and we, uh, you know, I hope that we don't ever get back there. I, I wish I'd bought a house during that time; that would be the one time <laughs> in California I would have yeah. been able to buy a house, and that's that's probably never going to happen again. But
0: you and I were just poor interns.
1: <laughs> oh, I know we're so That's our internship year we're so broke. Oh, my gosh. But let me give you a trigger warning. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the murder of children by a number of means, including traffic collisions, strangulation, gun violence, stabbing, as well as the murder of other adult family members. So this phenomenon of the act of murdering the entire family, as we said, is often associated with financial or emotional strain, mental health problems or revenge. Family annihilators often plan out the murder for weeks or even months in advance, and they may use a wide variety of methods, methods that are rarely subtle and that are predominantly violent. And clearly, we would all understand this, the aftermath of these crimes can absolutely leave a community reeling with shock and disbelief. As it's challenging for us, even in the true crime genre, to fully come to terms with someone killing their loved ones without any apparent reason. Although with a little digging, it is clear that those reasons and drives exist. And we'll talk about those today.
0: Certainly, like you said, for those of us seeped in some of this, it still is the most shocking and just does not sit well with us at all. So Yeah,
1: I think it's just because of the intimate and personal nature of it.
0: Of course. Of course. So just some few brief examples here. Well, I mean, we have the Murdoch murders, right? A very hot off the presses case involving a pillar of the community and father Alex Murdoch, who was just found guilty for murder of his wife and his son, as well as injury to himself. To cover for some of these things, we're talking about these out of control finances and shady dealings. That was obviously a very wild one. That's at the forefront of everyone's mind right now.
1: Yeah, and it's still in motion. I mean, while oh, yeah. the the it has been adjudicated, there's still things that are going. I'm sure there are going to be appeals. There's going to be a lot of talk about all the evidence that couldn't be talked about before will come out. As I've said in previous episodes, the podcast that really messed me up for a very long time was the first season of Cold, and that is the case of the missing. Utah wife, Susan Powell, and then the subsequent murder-suicide of her husband, Josh Powell, and their two young children in 2012, as well as a deep dive into the incredibly disordered family that Josh came from. And I think that the reason that has stuck with me for so long, Dr. Shiloh, is exactly what you were talking about before. It's that, that level of intimacy in family violence that just, mm-hmm. it's triggering. It's very mm-hmm. triggering.
0: Yeah, definitely. That one particularly so because we heard so much from this offender's mouth with the recordings yes and then you have something like the heartbreaking no pun intended Hart family murders from 2018 Mm, in which jennifer hart and her wife sarah hart murdered their six adopted children there was sierra who was age 12 abigail age 14 jeremiah age 14 Devante, age 15 and then Hannah was 16 and Marcus was 19. And this happened when Jennifer intentionally drove the family's SUV off a cliff in Mendocino County, California. So again, another one that everyone just is sitting back shaking their heads with like zero idea of how something like this could happen. So as you can see, a lot of variety of situations, a variety of sp- Family structures. And as we will see, there are a variety of motivations and psychological considerations going on here. So, as far as research goes, the research can be a little difficult to parse out when we talk about this term family annihilator, because although it feels very specific in our minds, it overlaps with a lot of different types of crimes we have covered before. And it can fit into various categories, of course, depending on the definitions and criteria that maybe a particular researcher is using. So, for instance, when said St. Dr. Reed Malloy publishes his research on mass murderers. One of those subcategories that he refers to under that big umbrella is family annihilators. But I think for today, you and I have found sort of a digestible way to address it on the show and just kind of break all of this research down.
1: Yeah, but that's a really great connection that you're making there. So we're starting off with part deets, you know, yeah. decades yeah. ago, coining this term, and then Dr. Malloy continuing with that sort of paradigm and integrating it into a larger context of mm-hmm. mass murder. So I think that's really important for our field to make sure that people understand that there's a carry through and that these particularly high level experts do rely on each other's research and writings in order to move their own research forward. So is there a difference in the profile of a murderer who commits suicide after killing their family versus one who does not harm themselves? And the recent case of Alex Murdoch, of course, comes to mind where he allegedly arranged for someone to kill him for insurance money after murdering his family, but ended up only getting injured.
0: Yeah. So when we look at this sort of murder suicides versus murderers, wiping out their family and staying alive, there is some research here. Louis Schlesinger is a professor of forensic psychology at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York, and he offers a perspective to shed light on the psychology behind these crimes. He explains that often the killer will initially plan to take their own life after killing their victim, but the intense emotions they experience during the act of the murder can be enough to satisfy their desire for that quote-unquote release.
1: Oof, man.
0: Yeah, going so far as to say that perpetrators have said in interviews, quote, I meant to kill myself afterward, but I just didn't, end quote. Schlesinger does caution against making sweeping generalizations about these cases because, of course, each one is unique with its own set of circumstances, facts, and dynamics. So while we have a general set of determinants in these perpetrators, it's still difficult to draw a definitive profile of a family killer. And I think if anything, this episode tells us that today because there's so many different types of people, different family situations, I was able to find a study that looked at typologies. But still, I I think it's really, really hard to profile this type of offender.
1: Yeah, but I love that point that you brought up this idea of who does follow through with suicide and who doesn't. And then that just weird, almost, I'm not going to liken it to a sexual release, mm-hmm, but what we would mm-hmm. say, a we, old school sort of Freudian term of cathecting, basically yep. vomiting up all of the emotion or popping a pimple or, you know, excising a lesion where, okay, so suddenly the urge is gone. Now the only challenge is, is dealing with the ramifications of what I've done. And if I don't really have a basis for compassion and empathy anyway, well, why don't I just pick up and go, you know yeah. start a new life somewhere which some people have done right yeah, we'll, absolutely. we'll talk about those and in looking at these unique circumstances in each case they all share that common thread the killers were responding to what is quoted in the literature as a gathering storm in their lives and their answer to that gathering storm or to offset it was to take the lives of their loved ones
0: Mm -hmm. And how many times do we ask ourselves this? Why didn't he just divorce her and go hang out with his new girlfriend? Like, why is this the solution rather than, you know, an option that you or I might pick if we weren't happy with our family situation
1: or even for the amounts. I mean, like if we're going to like sort of go in that direction that, you know, you're going to take out your husband for for a certain amount of insurance. And you're like, well, I mean, I can kind of see that like this is a person who's motivated by money. And then you see it's like, wait, their insurance policy was one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. Are you insane?
0: Yeah. So you get like one or two years off of work. Okay.
1: not that we're advocating for that (laughs) in any way, shape or form, folks. We are not. I just want to be clear.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Murder for money is not okay. It's not okay. So when we look at mothers or wives versus fathers and dads in these family annihilator situations. It's interesting what we find. So female family annihilators certainly receive less attention than male family annihilators. But as several of our past episodes have shown, it's just as devastating to see examples of these crimes perpetrated by what society would consider the familial nurturers, right? So I think there's there's rarity in the females conducting this type of behavior, just like If we look stand back and kind of look at all forms of violent crime, the less percentage is perpetrated by women. But the lack of attention when it happens then contributes to a lack of research. But risk factors have been identified in female perpetrators that include things like childhood abuse, poverty, and addiction, very similar to what we said when we covered filicide previously.
1: And as with male perpetrators, women who are the primary breadwinners in their families may very well feel overwhelmed by debt or just by the burden of supporting their loved ones mm-hmm. and, you know, not getting any outside support or not allowing any outside support as well. So sometimes these responsibilities that can extend really far beyond just finances and also into, you know, just like we were saying, the the burdens of running a household. Running a household is a business into itself, yeah. no matter what anybody says. It, it Stats all show that. And these female perpetrators may see killing as a way to escape the problems that could include a sense of inadequacy. But what really seems to emerge more significantly in terms of these female perpetrators is the presence of mental illness. Mm. So depression, anxiety, postpartum psychosis, they can all contribute to a woman's decision to commit this kind of act. And as the research has come in, more indicators point to women may feel that their family members would be better off dead than living in a world that they perceive as very important here, cruel, and unfair. And this is very much a marked contrast from the motivations for male perpetrators.
0: Right. Perceived as as cruel or unfair. Very right. important emphasis on that word. Another aspect that we've covered and maybe one of the most perplexing motivations for female family annihilators is revenge, because we know that's a category as well. And women may feel wronged by their partner or children and decide to get back at them in the most extreme way. They may also die by suicide after killing their loved ones, intending to leave them punished and alone. And research is beginning to indicate that women follow through with suicide in these cases more than men do. So I thought that was super fascinating. You know, even if either that like release that we were talking about isn't happening for the women or there's not what we're going to talk about later, sort of that malignant narcissism happening where the guilt, the shame, all of that starts to seep in for them. I don't know. The literature still refers to the typologies of female filicide that we covered in our recent episode reviewing the Lori Vallow documentary. So we have altruism. Again, if they feel like, Maybe their child is better off dead, like you were just talking about. Acutely psychotic, unwanted child, revenge, and then accidental due to the child abuse. And that was episode 129, if you want to go back and review those more in depth.
1: But when we turn to men who kill their children, we look at the work of Lillian D. Bortoli, a researcher at Swinburne University in Australia, where she has identified three types of fathers who murder their children.
0: So the first one is the de facto male And she says that this type of annihilator often exhibits controlling and possessive behavior towards the mother and may view the children as an obstacle to their relationship. De facto males may also have a history of substance abuse or mental health issues, which then will aggravate or escalate their violent tendencies. And she adds that de facto males may try to cover up their crime by staging it as an accident or creating some sort of scenario that implies the child or children were responsible for their deaths. These perpetrators may also attempt to manipulate the mother or other family members into believing that they had nothing to do with the child's death. So there's a lot of mind games being played before and after these crimes.
1: Then we also have the category of the separated father. So in the case of the separated father typology, the murdered children are the biological children of the separated father, and in these scenarios... He is almost always estranged from the mother, has a history of engaging in intimate partner violence against her, or physical, verbal, and emotional abuse of the children, or even worse, perpetrating on both the kids and mom. While the abuse may have been what precipitated the separation, a case where the ex is taking the appropriate steps to protect herself and her children, it is seen as both vindication of the separated father's anger, or it prompts rage that the narcissistic extension is not acting in the way that the perpetrator needs or demands. So with the separated father, revenge against the mother is the motivation, and killing often occurs during custody disputes.
0: So like this classic battered women syndrome cycle that... We've covered in episodes, really. Yeah. So, the last category is of the coupled father. The coupled father is a family annihilator who commits the crimes while the family is still intact, either legally or physically. But he is more likely than other categories to have a criminal history in his past. And the coupled father is at high risk of being not just a child killer, but also a full family annihilator. These perpetrators are notable for creating scenarios where there are multiple victims involved that not only target the children's mother, but perhaps members of the extended family and anyone else who happens to be present as well. Yeah. That's scary.
1: So in all these categories, it is probable that the perpetrator has underlying mental health issues that make them susceptible and vulnerable to negative emotions such as rumination, rage and obsession. And they're also highly unlikely to have any real substantial coping skills for the presence of these negative emotions. Therefore, these emotions can build up to a really dangerous level, leading to what can be described as a critical mass that results Mm. in violent behavior. Again, as we have said many times on this show, mentally ill individuals are much more likely to be the victims of crime rather than perpetrators. But we're drilling down into a very slim, thankfully slim subset of violent perpetrators with the presence of mental illness.
0: Yeah, with that gathering storm of factors happening. Right. Um, Dr. Dale Hartley is a contributor to Psychology Today in Forensic Psych Topics, and he explained the psychology of catathymic crisis when discussing family annihilators. So I wanted to read a quote that I pulled from one of his articles here. He says, In a catathymic crisis, the individual nurses grudges and ruminates over grievances to the point that he or she becomes hyper-obsessed and pathologically self-focused. This is most likely when a person is already psychologically disturbed. If he or she doesn't get help and won't let the matter drop, the obsession can build up to a state of rage-fueled cognitive dissonance so profound that the person experiences a dissociative or psychotic state. Yikes. Yeah. So I think, you know, as we've discussed, we did our episode on mass casualty event perpetrators and their overlap in history of intimate partner violence. That's why I wanted to touch on this because you have that grievance, that fixed mindset, as well as the piece of acting out against the family. So I just found that little tidbit interesting. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions, but the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever
3: you're listening.
1: canada a vast idyllic land filled with beavers loons lumberjacks and polite friendly folks we have those things for sure but there's a darker side to the great white north full of mystery crime the paranormal and dark history join me mike brown and co-host matthew stockton every monday for the dark poutine podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottaway game covering more international cases you can listen to dark poutine for free wherever you find your favorite
2: podcasts
1: You're really hitting on something fascinating and terrifying when we're talking about that term that he uses in that quote, rage-fueled cognitive dissonance. Mm. So, I mean, cognitive dissonance being the mental gymnastics that you and I usually refer to. So the ability in those moments of disinhibition to be able to justify perpetrating acts of violence, because in that moment, this is all that makes sense. This is absolutely what is justified in doing, which is really terrifying because for those that have a uh, predisposition for that, you, you cannot predict what the behavior is going to be. But I'm just wondering if you're slipping that in because you think I have another diagnosis. Is that me that we're talking about?
0: This one does not fit for you. I promise. Hopefully. no.
1: <laughs> I'll just go and affect my anger and rage somewhere else. I'll go read yeah. books or watch sci-fi.
0: Yeah, just get fixated, hyper fixated on that. Okay. (laughs) So you have an example of the coupled father for us?
1: I did. Yeah, this one is particularly disturbing. And it is, again, also very recent in the news. I do have to give props. I think there's a lot of criticism of People Magazine, but People Magazine really does type little articles about some of these really terrible crimes that happen. And they do a good job of getting all the bullet points in, I have to say. So this started popping up on my feed probably due to the algorithm of everything that I research. And I wanted to talk about Michael Haight. And in 2019, police made a terrible, terrible discovery of eight bodies inside a family's home in Enoch, Utah. It's an 8,000 person town, about 250 miles south of Salt Lake City. And Michael Haight took the life of his wife, Tasha Haight, as well as her 78-year-old mother and their five children before taking his own life. So Enoch police reported that they were familiar with the family and they confirmed that Michael had been investigated in the past for other issues prior to these killings. And Clearly, this implies that Michael's tendency towards violence was noted by authorities long before any real action was taken. So two years after an incident with Child Protective Services, Haight annihilated his entire family following Tasha, his wife's filing for divorce. So right there, we see the mm-hmm. pen, the linchpin is being pulled out for what he may perceive as his ability to control the situation or his support system. And as more history is revealed by collaterals related to the case, this process, profile starts to emerge of a man who really saw himself as a strict authoritarian patriarch. He was aggressive, impulsive, and clearly disinhibited when it came to physically assaulting his eldest daughter. Other sources in our research reveal that he was likely paranoid and jealous, leading him to spy and monitor his wife's electronics in order to read her text messages and monitor her. Other sources report that he was specifically looking to see if she was airing dirty laundry about the family. So there wow, was a, a, a real Real issue of shame there, of like, this is my business. I'm a good, righteous, upstanding religious Mormon person. I'm justified in being the the leader and the guide for this family. Don't talk about our secrets, right? But there was a problem in this mix in the family, and I'm not even going to say it was a, a problem, but it was definitely an issue for him. And that was the daughter, Macy Haight. So Macy Haight, the family's oldest daughter, detailed multiple assaults and extreme abuse that she had suffered at the hands of her father in a 2020 interview with DCFS authorities in that state. I think it's just called DCS in California's Department of Child and Family Services. Michael had been investigated by police and child Protective services two years earlier for child abuse, but he was never <laughs> charged. And while Macy provided authorities with a long history of Michael's assaults that included a strangling, shaking, and even during one physical episode, he picked his daughter up and slammed her against the back of a couch. She was wounded by this and actually had to be cleared medically. But during the CPS investigations, Michael, Tasha, the mom, and Macy were all reported to have reframed the incident as a quote-unquote misunderstanding. So hate definitely fits the profile of a family annihilator of the coupled father type. Although Tasha had filed for divorce, hate allowed his rage to take out not only her, but his biological children and collateral victims like his mother-in-law. Follow-up investigations by law enforcement revealed that both Michael and Tasha each owned a number of guns that he had systematically removed from the home, including Tasha's. And the implication of this is that it was intentional in order for Michael to create vulnerability within the family so that they would not be able to protect themselves. Yeah, I I have to take a moment for that. Like that, there's something to that that is incredibly chilling. In -hmm. spite of all the crazy stuff we talk about, that is really, really chilling. And interestingly enough, a wildly strange and completely inappropriate obituary notice for Michael Haight described him as he made it a point to spend quality time with each and every one of his children with no mention of the killings. And thankfully that was only up for several hours before somebody yanked it down. But I I can't even really wrap my mind around who would have had the balls to do that. It almost feels like it was a troll.
0: Or God, that is so weird. I wonder if it's just, you know, a family member that doesn't know what the hell to write, but there, it's a really good option not to have an obituary for somebody. That's okay when they yeah, have wiped their counsel. family out. Like, yes, no, call, please. Call
1: the newspaper and say, please hey, consult I got this terrible, someone. yeah.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, I'm just like, I don't know why, like I'm just putting two and two together, but realizing that with my... A second officer-involved shooting when I was on the job, I mean, we really, like, interrupted an attempted family annihilation because Mm -hmm. with our case, this guy had gone to his ex-wife's mother's house where the ex-wife and the daughter were and I think some other at least the ex-wife's brother and some other people and their child that they had together, he actually had his friends like take away from the location, essentially like kidnapped her. She turned out to be fine after all of this, but he had zip tied everyone in that house and was going to assassinate every single one of them oh when, when he let one of them use the restroom. And that's when he called 911. And that's what we walked into and showed up to just thinking it was, you know, your run of the mill.
1: Just some kind of routine. 911 yeah. hang
0: up call, you know, so that's, Nobody died in that situation, but that's certainly what was going to happen. I didn't even think about it in that term. It's crazy. So I, I want to discuss typologies that were proposed back in 2013 here. And this is really the only study then that's been done of its kind and from which a lot of other articles will reference. I do want to say there was a thesis done more recently here in the US that I read, I didn't think it was particularly good. So I'm not going to cite it. And I also didn't like the language that they used as far as feeling like their typologies they came up with were a little mental illness, blamey, if you will. (laughs) So so I decided to skip that one altogether. I'm like, it's just a thesis, whatever. (laughs) So we'll go with this one, which is really the standing lasting one. So but a caveat here, this was just done as far as cases in the UK. So we'll get into that. But Professor David Wilson, he's the director of the Center of Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University and the primary author on this research in which they basically analyzed archival data on British family annihilators from 1980 to 2012. So a lot of cases to pull from here. And here's just some notable findings before we get into the typologies. Obviously, they found this is an overwhelmingly male crime. So 59 of the 71 cases that they found were men. Over half of these men, 55%, were in their 30s. And 10% were in their 20s. The oldest was discovered to be only 59. They also found that the rate at which this type of crime is being committed has increased. So they found the first decade of the 21st century claimed over half of all of these cases, which is a really interesting thing to sort of opine why this seems to be the answer and what plays into that. And then also, like just a little tidbit, but interesting, August was found to be the most common month for the killings to take place, accounting for. 20% of the cases. And just under half of all the murders were committed over weekends, especially on Sundays. So if you think about it, these are times that fathers could have a lot of access to their children, whether the family's still intact, or maybe they're visiting for the summer, August, and he's not at work, they're not at school. And for those who are separated, often the case is that, you know, you have to sort of hand the children back to the mother on a Sunday at the end of the weekend. So when you get into all that child custody dispute stuff, this sort of tracks.
1: So stabbings and carbon monoxide poisoning are statistically the most common murder methods, and the majority of murders were found to take place In the home, 81% of the men attempted suicide after the act, which refutes the traditional idea that family annihilators may force the police to shoot them as Park Dietz had included in his original 1986 definition. There were no recorded cases of standoffs with the law. That's fascinating to Mm -hmm. me. Not one. Yeah, that's really fascinating.
0: Because that would have uh, been in the news. <laughs>
1: absolutely. Absolutely, it would. And also refuted was the idea that murderers may be unhappy or frustrated men with a long history of failure. So even though we're going to give you an example a little bit later of someone who actually did have a long string of failures, 71% were employed with occupations that included from being surgeons and marketing executives to postmen and law enforcement professionals.
0: All right. So on to the proposed typologies. They came up with four. So the first one is what they termed self-righteous. And these every definition that we're going to read here is just pulled exactly from the research. They say that self-righteous is the killer seeks to locate blame for his crimes upon the mother who he holds responsible for the breakdown of the family. This may involve the killer phoning his partner before the murder to explain what he is about to do. For these men, their breadwinner status is central to their idea of the ideal family. And then you have the disappointed category. And Wilson and his partners say that, Quote, this killer believes his family has let him down or has acted in ways to undermine or destroy his vision of the ideal family life. An example may be disappointment that children are not following the traditional, religious, or cultural customs of the father.
1: Interesting. Very glad yep. to have that one specifically written out. This also leads into the next one called a gnomic, And the quote states, in these cases, the family has become firmly linked in the mind of the killer to the economy. The father sees family as the result of his economic success, allowing him to display his achievements. However, if the father becomes an economic failure, he sees the family as no longer serving this function. Wow. Wow. Paranoid. So here's another typology. Those who perceive an external threat to the family, and this is often social services or the legal system which the father fears will side against him and take away the children. Here, the murder is motivated by a twisted desire to protect the family. Mm -hmm. Again, all of these things, especially anomic and paranoid so far, having a lot of strong narcissistic qualities, like, you know, really internally based, my wants, my needs, lack of mirroring compassion and empathy for his family members. Yeah,
0: this one, I just think of John. Josh Powell, you know, like CPS is literally knocking on the door as he's exploding things inside the house. Yeah. Horrible.
1: So these authors concluded that in all of these cases, masculinity and the perceptions of power are really at play in the background of these crimes. And this quote, totally nails it. The family role of the father is central to their ideas of masculinity and the murders represent a last ditch attempt to perform a masculine role. Boom, Mm -hmm. mic drop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So funny, like, you know, we have so much debate today about this term, like within the incel community and within the manosphere of the alpha male. And the guy who coined the term alpha male has come forward waving his hands going, yeah, that's not, that's actually not a thing, guys. That's not, you've completely misinterpreted it. That's not what we meant at all. It's not- <laughs> you took it from packs of wolves. That's not how they you know nope. you're you're blowing something up and basing something on a, a fallacy. And mm-hmm. yet it is, It has become twisted into this, the male role norms in the last 20, 30 years.
0: Yeah, definitely. So lastly here, Dr. Wilson opined, quote, the family annihilator should be seen as a specific category of murderer for a crime which appears to be increasing. To begin solving this problem, the role of gender must be recognized, acknowledging that it is mainly men who will resort to this type of violence. So... Again, that's a great quote for a lot of violence that we talk about on this show. So as far as other psychological considerations, we wanted to talk about malignant narcissism, which is a combination of narcissism and antisocial personality disorder, as we've discussed ad nauseum in other episodes, because what a shocker. This seems to be a theme with a lot of... Who could possibly
1: have imagined this, right? So weird. How did that happen?
0: Individuals with this disorder lack empathy and very often live in grandiose fantasies that compete with reality. These grandiose fantasies are in and of themselves fragile defense mechanisms. Those with high levels of charisma, bolstered by unfounded confidence, are able to side that they rarely exhibit any signs of empathy towards others. And narcissists do not like to have their fantasies challenged. When this happens, this is when we can see rage because they easily go from zero to 10.
1: Perfectly stated. And then we take it a step further into a non-DSM sanctioned yeah. subtype of narcissism that we call malignant narcissism. So like I was saying, it's not an individual diagnosis in the DSM, but instead we think of it as a subset of NPD and it's think of it as the toxic cherry and the malignant narcissist ice cream sundae <laughs> of paranoia.
0: Oh, just so, a little, drop right. a little paranoia on Let's top. Just,
1: that's such a good mix there. If the person is intelligent, they may well even be able to fabricate more inaccuracy in their scenarios. So the more creativity they have, the more intelligence they have, that could actually feed the ideas that they generate about, you know, this external force being against them. So there's also the issue of this lack of empathy that exists in this particular subtype that makes them able or requires them to carry out harmful behaviors. You know, an example of O.J. Simpson, who I'll very clearly state here, was acquitted of charges of murder against his wife, has clearly exhibited some significant traits of malignant narcissism. And in a time of great loss and distress for his family, he really appeared completely uninterested in his kids, and he focused Mm -hmm. more on himself. And now, obviously, he's got a lot of focus on him for that. But where was the mourning for this person that he completely loved? Where is the attachment to his offspring that would have been a source right. of support for him. It just wasn't there. So while it can be challenging to prove that someone lacks empathy, one of the things that makes it even more challenging is when the person is charismatic or particularly attractive. Because right. we, we 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 give people a lot of credo points for attractiveness and charisma that are not earned at all.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so a couple of factors that go along with this. One is persistent blaming, which is a telltale sign of... Narcissism. This is when they refuse to take personal responsibility for their actions, instead, play the victim. We see that a lot, even when they have caused harm to others. Yes. So this behavior is a big red flag that should not be ignored.
1: Violence is another warning sign of a malignant narcissist, whether they act out in physical, verbal, or just emotional ways. And I shouldn't even say just emotional ways, because that can be brutal as well. But in this particular constellation, criticism is perceived as a direct attack on their fragile ego, and they will retaliate with excessive force. So frequent violent outbursts indicate a lack of impulse control, and it may even be accompanied by multiple addictions right
0: and then we have manipulation which is a really common tactic used by narcissists to pit people against each other and gain loyalty This loyalty often results in isolation, leaving the victim feeling alone and vulnerable. It's important to recognize these manipulative behaviors and take action to protect oneself when you finally start figuring out that this is going on, because sometimes it can take a while because they're so good at all of this, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this in a lot of different iterations and a lot of it's this is a very much a recurring theme in the true crime genre when it comes to domestic violence or intimate partner violence is how behavior. Behavioral drift and boundary drift starts to happen on the part of the partner who is being battered. It's like, well, it, it's usually okay. He's this is just a bad day for him or her. It'll get better, and you just suddenly sort of drift away into this no man's land of emotional, physical, and verbal abuse. FBI former supervisory special agent Lance Lysing, regarding Jason Hudgens, the family annihilator who killed his wife and two kids in Phoenix, Arizona, he asserts very strongly that rage and passion, toxic. Intersect in the minds of these
0: killers. Oh, I like that. Rage and passion toxically intersect. He states, quote, irrationally in their own mind, they think they're doing their kids a favor by ending their lives because they don't see a future for them. In this particular case, Jason's wife, Marla, had struggled for years with infertility challenges to finally have her own biological family. And Agent Leasing states that if he was so angry at his wife that he wanted to take away everything that she loved, everything that was good to her, She probably loved those children above all. So taking those children away was just another act to get back at the wife.
1: This is brutal, but so accurate and so important to this particular discussion, because Leasing's statement that you shared, the first part of the sentence, irrationally in their own mind, they think that they're doing their kids a favor by ending their lives because Mm -hmm. they don't see a future for them. So he's saying, I'm going to end my kid's life because I don't see a future for them. So if we frame that within the paradigm of narcissism, a narcissist does not see other people's needs as separate from their own. So if this father is saying I don't see a future for myself here, then certainly my children are not going to have a future mm-hmm. because they are me, they are my arm, they are my narcissistic extension, they're my narcissistic source. I think yeah. that's what makes it particularly brutal and complex.
0: Yeah, that's very very insightful on his part. And you know, I think our your first tendency would be to go oh, he doesn't think the mom's good enough, so he doesn't see a future for them. But it's actually what you just said.
1: Exactly.
0: That he can't see beyond himself. Right. And that's, that's spilling over.
1: And they may very well be threatened by the wife's competence or her ability or or the love that she gets reflected back from the children.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I think everyone probably listening right now is saying, where do the Scott Petersons and the Chris Watts of the world fit in? The men who kill their families and have this other relationship on the side, right? Seemingly wiping out their family to start fresh with this new life. you think we put them here under malignant narcissism? I mean, not that this is a typology and we're just conjecturing here.
1: (laughs) I'm going to say in this malignant narcissism Sunday, there's been, there's some strong flavors.
0: <laughs> I a, am so a... making a diagram of a malignant narcissism Sunday. For yes, we have to.
1: <laughs> yes, get on Canva. get going on that. <laughs> I think it's hard to, I mean, I, there's, you know, those particular two that you, you used as examples right there are so specific and so similar. There's such a huge overlap in their, you know, supposed devotion and their, you know, their presentation as being the upright family guy and yet Mm -hmm. carrying on in the background. I don't know if it's malignant narcissism or it's just regular like run of the mill narcissism and and something else malignant yeah. just seems more vicious on a consistent level like when we talk about hate yeah. Michael hate had a history of abuse and manipulation right. and you know in all forms to all members of his family whereas Scott and Chris seemed to hold it together and then although we never like to use the word snapped there was an inflection point where they turned
3: No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver, Veronica West, who's about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis, wherever podcasts are served.
0: Well, I mean, they're definitely coupled fathers still, so they fit up there when we talk about those breakdowns. And I'm just looking at these other typologies. And I don't know, I think they are just so unique and just so self-involved, which you can be super self-involved your whole life, still get married, still have kids not be a quote unquote like bad guy on the outside and then I guess get to the point where you're like, Time to get rid of my family and
1: Well, there's also definitely what I want. Both of those examples, I would say that there's a lack of empathy. One of the things that, you know, and this is my quasi professional, very heavily personal observation is that both Scott Peterson and Chris Watts had very little effectual presentation in their eyes. Basically, Uh that's a that's a pseudoscientific way of saying they both had shark eyes. You know, they both had like almost Botox, very little expression, not a lot of nothing wrong with Botox when it's used appropriately. (laughs) And judiciously. But no, you know what I'm saying? Like it's shark eyes where there's just like every, there's a smile on the face, but the eyes don't move. And just I just, you you see a lot of that in those two individuals. So I don't think there was a lot of empathy. I don't think there was a lot of compassion. I think there was a lot of imitation. Mm -hmm. Good point. But let me give you a couple of other examples here. We have one that goes all the way back to 1971. This is something that had a very interesting outcome and really is one of the more obscure cases. But in 1971 in November... November. A really gruesome crime just shook this very affluent town of Westfield, New Jersey. Very affluent section of town. In fact, I think Westfield, New Jersey is where that other Netflix docu-series about the guy who's the watcher.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's
1: been writing letters to people or he or she has. Anyway, Westfield, New Jersey clearly has a lot of weirdos in it. <laughs> anyway, John List at that time was 46 years old. He was employed as an accountant and he shot and killed his wife his mother, and his three children in their, what is reported to be an opulent mansion that was just 16 miles west of Manhattan. So these killings were methodical, with List even taking a lunch break between each murder. He then lined up the bodies of his victims on sleeping bags in the ballroom of his home, except for his mother, because she was too heavy to move, apparently. And he had been fired from a series of jobs and was facing foreclosure on this enormous, magnificent home. And prior to leaving, and supposedly in preparation for his suicide, List, left behind a letter for his Lutheran minister, confessing to his crimes and saying that he killed his family due to both financial problems and the belief that his children were beginning to succumb to world influences that resulted in them losing moral and religious values, and that he asserted that he could not have his family being on welfare.
0: Yeah. So, actually, in in the Watcher, they have John List as a character who, in Ryan Murphy's mind, kind of made it so like he lived in that home previously. Oh, and then kind of came back and fucked with the family a little bit. So he's one that they're like, "Is this guy sending the letters?" Ryan um,
1: uses a lot of creative license, as it were. I
0: know, but yeah, the sort of one of the like the storylines throughout it is that also he is very fixated on his daughter, like becoming. You know, kind of like slut-shaming her, like getting out of the, the church sort of life and being influenced. So this this tracks. But, but I think this comes back to a lot of what we're talking about before when we're looking at Dr. Wilson's work of this theme of masculinity and control of the family and being the breadwinner. And when you start losing that control, when your kids become a certain age and other influences infiltrate their brains like happens in life and helps us develop, that was just too much for him. But I also wonder about, you know, kind of this discussion point you have here on the topic of shame as well, and how that comes into all of this, especially a really tight knit community and how he feels like he might be being reflected.
1: Yeah. I mean, narcissism at its root, if we're not going to kind of spring off into malignant narcissism or toxic narcissism, narcissism at its root is a defense mechanism that affects people with a predisposition to a personality disorder. Like there's Mm -hmm. a makeup that happens that makes them perceive the world differently. And one of the things that can really contribute to narcissism is being the regular Joe in a family that's actually full of very talented people that can, right. you know, so this defense mechanism is built up so that the person has some kind of foundation. But then, unfortunately, it gets wildly out of control. Again, in this example of list, the thing that interests me is that he asserted he could not have his family being on welfare. To me, that's him saying, I will not be on welfare.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's shameful. Yeah. So after the killings, List fled across the country and lived under an assumed identity for nearly two decades. And it wasn't until a May 1989 episode of America's Most Wanted, which featured an eerily accurate forensic sculptor's impression of how List would have aged. I remember when they used to do that <laughs> on those <Yeah>. shows. <laughs> and you're like, what the hell is that?
1: <laughs> and some of them were so wrong. So, oh, some wrong. Of them were so wrong. And
0: they're all so creepy. So he was finally captured after that aired. And he died in prison in 2008 at the age of 82. For those interested in delving deeper into this chilling case, we highly recommend the podcast "Father Wants Us Dead."
1: God, now you got me thinking about there was one <laughs> unsolved mysteries or America's Most Wanted that had a recreation, and it looked like a junior high school papier mache head for a play or oh, something. It was so it. bad, like like it. The the guy was supposed to be redheaded, and they had just maybe they didn't have another color <laughs> hair. So it looked like they got some red wool and just glued it onto the head. Oh my god! was gosh. so bad. Oh my God.
0: I just remember them doing this big buildup to like, this is the newest thing and these artists slash scientists you know are are bringing their trades together and then they would have the skull and then they would put the little like spacer things on and then yeah. start just like sucking us in that this was going to solve all the problems
1: <laughs> although i mean look what it's morphed into 30 30 plus years later is that with dna they yeah. can now determine like major wild. facial features and that is that's wild and kind of creepy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But moving on from Father Wants Us Dead, in December 2001, Christian Longo was sentenced to death for the murder of his wife, Mary Jane, and their three young children, Zachary, Sadie Ann, and Madison. Christian Longo, who was only 27 at the time, had fled to Mexico after killing his family and then dumping their bodies along the Oregon coast. He was arrested a month later in the resort town of Tulum.
0: Oh, how very influencer Mm. of him to be in Tulum. Longo had been in Cancun just a few months before being recognized by a patron at one of the hotels and she made a report to the FBI, which resulted in a task force of 20 plus agents from various law enforcement agencies descending on Tulum.
1: Like many other family annihilators, Longo was drowning in debt and struggling to maintain what really is described as an extravagant lifestyle that he could not afford. He resorted to credit card debt and then to stealing in order to support his spending habits. Longo, much like Christopher Watts, tried to implicate his wife in the murders, claiming that she drowned two of their children and attempted to smother Madison. He asserted that in a fit of rage, he strangled her and then killed Madison because he believed that she was already dead.
0: Huh. Interesting. Mm. Longo's story was made into a rather unremarkable movie starring James Franco after his story was turned into a book by author Michael Finkel entitled True Story, Murder, Memoir, Mea Coppa. In a truly odd, ironic, and even meta, if you will, occurrence... Finkel learned that Longo had used Michael Finkel, the name Michael Finkel, as an alias on several occasions during his escape. And Finkel himself was the focus of a huge controversy when he was fired from the New York Times after falsifying information for an article they had published. So what a weird like twist.
1: It is very strange. I mean, it makes me wonder, like maybe Longo read an article about the controversy and thought, oh, well, that would track if I tell everybody I'm Michael Finkel, they'll believe yeah, this dude got in trouble. And so he's hiding out in Mexico.
0: Yeah. I wonder if Michael Finkel was like Googling his name one day and was like, oh, this guy used my name. I'm going to write a book about it. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> it,
1: could it could be. Unfortunately, there are so many examples over the years. Again, we know that we are more likely to be victims of a crime at the hands of someone close to us rather than an unknown stranger.
0: Yeah. That's scary, and it makes this category of offenders even more terrifying, along with what we talked about at the beginning, like the surrealness we feel when we hear about these stories and the brutal and sometimes, for lack of a better word, dramatic ways in which they go out or take out the family. And I think that's why, you know, like the heart family one also sticks with me. Yeah. Recently we had another similar attempt at a family annihilation here in California in that same manner. We
1: had oh, that's right.
0: Yeah. Darmesh Patel, he's 41. He's currently charged with three counts of attempted murder in connection with the crash that involved his 41-year-old wife, their two kids, a seven-year-old girl, a four-year-old boy. Everyone survived. So what he did is he drove the family Tesla off the cliff in San Mateo County. This was just in January. And in an interesting turn of events recently, the wife is pleading with the court for him not to be prosecuted.
1: I cannot even comment on that.
0: Even though she says... I know he tried to kill us. So it's not like she's saying "Wait, it was an accident. She's saying, I know he tried to kill us. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens there.
1: Yeah. She said that like, as they were being rescued, that he had, she was telling oh, responders that, that that he had tried to kill them. And there's also a case that we discussed in our Tragic Kingdom episode, Anthony Tote. He was the yeah. father who moved his family to their celebration vacation home outside Disney World and then murdered his wife, Megan, and their three kids, Zoe, Alec, and Tyler, when he was not able to escape his extreme financial failings. That was a, a brutal one, too, that they're... Talk about dissociative. He must I have know. completely dissociated, just left the bodies to decompose. Brutal. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. In all of our research, of all things, there's actually a decent ranker list that has, uh, has a variety of offenders, a variety of motives. We will put that in the resources and the show notes so you can kind of peruse through that as well.
1: Yeah, we need to get on the Discord channel with that and have people see if they can put it into the
0: categories. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So as far as entertainment, you know, good old law and order always comes through for us. They had an episode in 1996 called Savior. And this is where a hard luck executive is accused of murdering his wife and son and injuring a daughter that ends up living. And they have Dr. Elizabeth Olivet, who's a recurring character. She's a clinical psychologist on the show who consults for the NYPD and the district attorney's office. And she hops between shows, I guess. She's, She's on Law and Order, Law and Order SVU, Law and Order Criminal Intent, Trial by Juries, their other one. And so Basically, on the stand, she tells prosecutors that he fits the profile of a family annihilator, but I guess sort of backs down at some point when he refuses to confess. I don't know. I haven't seen it. It's all very confusing. But according to the all-knowing Law & Order wiki page, this episode is based on the John List case. So you have that. There's also a episode of a show called Prodigal Son. And that was from 2019, and it's called Annihilator. So Prodigal Son was a show that ran from 2019 to 2021, starred Tom Payne as Malcolm Bright, who is, quote, one of the best criminal psychologists around. Yes. He uses his twisted genius to help the NYPD solve crimes.
1: Oh, my God. They made a show about me, my twisted oh genius. Oh, my
0: God. <laughs> yes. So you. <laughs> and in this episode... Here, let me, he... let me
1: wipe the Fritos dust off my shirt. Sure, and I'll get right on that case. <laughs>
0: let me wipe the Fritos dust <laughs> off my waddle. Hang on. <laughs> <Like> a, <laughs> you're let me, so Let me just
1: cough it. up a Cheeto on this official <laughs> legal document in front of me.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Dr. Scott, you're so much well put together. That. <laughs> so he helps NYPD investigate a number of crimes. But in this case, there's this rich family that is murdered by possibly a family annihilator so and then there was a film that our good patreon member Bridget just reminded us of before I know we and you didn't
2: you
1: were like wait is this is this one?" And I'm like no it's the one with Terry <laughs> Quinn from, was it from the 90s or the 80s? I think it was the 80s. 80s, yeah. yeah. So Terry Quinn, that most people will recognize from Lost, even though he's actually been around for years. But anyway, this is a great psychological horror movie about a guy who meets a widow and mm-hmm. marries her, and she has a teenage daughter, and then... You kind of know it from the beginning that he already killed his family in another town. And basically, it's implied that this is just what he does over and over again as he goes and he finds the perfect People to rescue, and then he marries them. Marries the woman, you know. And the, if the children, it'll the, the whole thing lasts longer if the children are perfect. But if they're not, and oh. what was the other aspect of it? Oh, I think there were like two sequels. I think he came back what? for the second one, but the third one was somebody else. It might have been that guy from Wings, but I'm not sure. But it's actually it's actually a really good movie. Like it's really fun and and schlocky. But yeah, now I got to go back and find it. That was good.
0: So it's called the stepfather. I don't know if we yes, said that. The stepfather. So he just. Like, is it for financial gain? Because it sounds exhausting to just keep finding families. No, it's
1: more psych. it's I think it's more psychological Hard that like Ah. he he has this idea of what a perfect family is supposed to be. And when, you know, the teenage girl is being, you know, appropriately experimental in her age, you know, he can't handle it. Coming of age. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Huh. Well,
1: folks, thank you very much for sticking with us. We really downloaded a lot of intense information today. I was not expecting that we would go to this direction with this episode this week. So Dr. Shiloh, thank you for choosing that. It was really renewed my research interest in this area, in this particular subset, because I'm so used to looking at specifically mass killers. But this yeah, one, this this sure. area, the specific area of is is fascinating. And folks, we are just a couple of weeks away from the Parapod Festival here in Southern California. So please make sure that if you're local or if you want to come and be local for the weekend, that you grab your tickets and we can then see you on April 1st for a live panel with our dear, dear friends at Holly Weird Paranormal to discuss the crimes and ghosts of the Barclay Hotel. So you can get tickets at parapodfestival.com.
0: Yes, this is their very first one. So we're super excited to be there and hopefully many more to come. And then just to get ready, folks, for next week, our documentary review episode is going to be on the Netflix film Long Shot, which is my favorite true crime documentary. It's very hard to pick. It was between two and they're so, so different. So this is the one I chose as my number one. It's got LA as a beautiful backdrop to it baseball, what more could you want, Hollywood twist to it. So we're very excited to review that for you. And Dr. Scott, you're going to have to think of what your all-time favorite is.
1: Yeah, that's weird because I think one of the reasons that The Long Shot is so great without giving anything away, if you haven't seen it, is that there's Resolution. There's like, you, this is it's one of nice, those that you story. that you actually have a sigh of relief at the end. And Absolutely. I can say, that's why, that's why I can see it would be your favorite. So that's just harder for me because most of yeah. the ones that I've seen are like, don't have good endings. That's okay. Unfortunately, get, just
0: get to thinking and we'll, we'll, we'll dig back into the archives if we have to, because this one is like 2017. So yeah. it's an old one, but anyway, we will have that ready for you next week. And until then, we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, Bye, guys. Bye. Sincerely, thank you for spending some time with us today. L.A. Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions.
1: The L.A. Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons Attribution license, and you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube.
0: All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la not so dash confidential.com you can find us on instagram at la not so podcast on twitter at la not so pod and on facebook at la not so confidential media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienist entertainment at gmail.com please
1: join us each month on saturdays at 4 p.m pacific standard time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on youtube entitled behind the couch Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements.
0: Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way.
1: Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye, folks.